is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, a new facility set to help farmers become more sustainable and productive. And also some new figures show over 50% of New South Wales is in drought or on the cusp of drought. Farmers in the Hunter say storms overnight were patchy, but they have offered a glimmer of hope amid a bleak season. But last night watching that band on the radar, you know, it did cover a big area and hopefully the majority of people got something. More on that story shortly and as I was just saying there before on the cusp of drought or in drought 52% of New South Wales we'll hear more about that shortly. You can always send us a text 0467 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. And on the drought story, the drought continues to spread with New South Wales DPI combined. Drought indicators showing that 52% of New South Wales is in one of three drought categories. Over 40% of the North Coast Local Land Services region is in the intense drought category. On-ground conditions are consistent with the onset of a major drought in many regions across the state. And supplementary feeding of livestock is well underway in these regions as well. On the flip side, though, parts of southern New South Wales continue to have a strong production outlook, though consistent rainfall will be needed to maintain those uh, conditions. The DPI's Anthony Clark says farmers should monitor on-ground conditions and climate forecasts closely while implementing their individual drought plans. Yeah, we're seeing a, a real mixed bag across the state at the moment, Michael. Um, as you mentioned, unfortunately, we are seeing a, a drought event uh, spread in its its land area and also in, in areas um, which have been in drought for a while, just increase in intensity. Um, some of the rainfall figures, you know, are now sort of the lowest 12 months, 12, 15 months on record, um, you know, in places like the north coast and parts of the Hunter, we're starting to see sort of quite intense pockets up around Moree as well emerge. Um, you know, on the on the flip side, um, it's still reasonably okay uh, down in the south of the state in the Riverina, for example. Um, we have seen some drying off over the last month, but um, the production outlook still reasonably strong in that part of the state. And I, I guess we would be seeing similar sort of figures in terms of pasture growth in the far west you know that's a bit of an issue yeah we're starting to see um the the, the northern part of, of of western new south wales northeast part of western new south wales you know, really hit, hit those thresholds which indicate prolonged drought um we're seeing real dips and drying off right across the western region um you know in fact we've, we've had a few farmers contact us and and point out that yeah, you know, potentially some of the official figures are missing low rainfall events. Um, when you look at things through remote sensing, you're seeing a lot of farm-by-farm variability in, in western region, um, a lot of impacts on, on uh, available pasture. So a lot of variability. Some patches are really good stuff and, and some which are, you know, at those levels where they're, they're hand-feeding livestock. As, as always, drought is the... It's a slow process to, to move into drought, but uh, nevertheless devastating. Oh, yes. They describe it as a slow, creeping, insidious event. You, you, you know, you can look back in hind, hind, 
cast and sort of go, yeah, that's a major drought. But in the moment, it's often really hard to pick. It can be a, anywhere from a, a month to six-month process, really. And you also mentioned there that some pockets are doing better than others, and we're seeing that in some of the figures in terms of the grain harvest. Uh, grain Corp yesterday saying, you know, it's it's been a, it's a lower harvest than we've seen, but it's still not too bad because we're getting some reasonable tonnages in from some areas. Yeah, look, um, quite a lot of farm-to-farm variability, even in some of those drought regions. You know, for for example, we know that there were some some big falls of rain, say up on the north coast, but it, but out in the cropping belt, we've had some good storms track uh, through. Um, you know, during the spring and really kicking crops along, and now that it's it's dried out, it's actually not a bad outcome. You know, people are, unlike last year are able to get machinery onto the land and and get the stuff off in 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 good time. So, like I said, it can be a real mixed bag within regions. Yeah, and it, but it is sort of a tale of the north versus the south, isn't it? Really, generally speaking. Oh, generally speaking, absolutely. Um, um, you know, we're seeing that drought event just day by day really, you know, in- increase its footprint coming from the northeast into the west and now down through the central parts of New South Wales. And, and of course, not to forget, um, you know, really throughout this event so far, it's been a coastal event. You know, we're, we're still seeing sort of quite concerning rainfall and soil moisture figures around Bega, for example, in, in the dairy farming district down there. Yeah, that's right. They're desperate for rain there. That's sort of that pocket that has really in the south that's really missed out, isn't it? Yeah, and it continues to do so, unfortunately. And I guess, you know, the messages going into summer, we're expecting a long, hot summer. Yeah, we are. Look, the, the actual numerical model output, output from the, the Bureau of Meteorology is reasonably optimistic. It's probably the a more optimistic picture than, say, the last forecast period. Um, really what it's telling us that the models are saying for New South Wales, particularly northern New South Wales, you know, we'll have an active tropical convergence this summer. And that, of course, brings a lot of storm rain. It is, you know, rainfall. It's, and we're starting to see that already in, in parts of the state, a lot of storms tracking across the state. High spatial variability, you can get a, a cluster of farms that get a lot of relief um, or a real kick out of that rain and others miss out on it completely. So it is optimistic, but it's it's still a time to be fairly cautious. Oh, so, so a bit more optimistic for the for those summer croppers that are a bit, as you say, a bit uh, opportunistic. That's right, yes, mm. absolutely. So I guess the message is to be, despite that, to just to be cautious. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky time for everyone. Um, you know, this type of, people where things have dried out and they are surviving rainfall to rainfall event, you know, you're really banking on the way storms are tracking across the state and that's that in itself has got a lot of variation and variability. Um, you know, we, we also do have higher evaporation rates, so it does reduce the effectiveness of any rainfall potentially. So, you know, cautiously optimistic is the, the, the right approach here. But if you might have some hungry stock or thirsty stock, uh, if you're not certain about what you've got in terms of feed, it's uh, it, it can be a, a it could be a difficult time ahead. Oh, it's a really um, difficult decision making environment for farmers at the moment. The high spatial variability of rainfall, little bit of optimism, but um, you know, like anything to do with climate, there's never a hundred percent certainty that it's going to fall in your favour. 
And, and of course, you know, the, the, the markets and pricing situations are, are reasonably tight as well, uh, particularly for livestock producers. Anthony Clark, who's an agricultural climatologist with the Department of Primary Industry. It's coming up to 13 minutes past 12 on the country hour. With the threat of natural disasters becoming more severe and financial impacts on farming and small business increased, making a risk management plan for your enterprise could make a real difference. Agribusiness consultant David Brown has been travelling around New South Wales with the Rural Financial Counselling Service, running workshops that inform on ways to best navigate risk and natural hazards. I think most of the research is suggesting that our climate has become more variable and as a possible consequence of that is that natural disasters will become possibly more frequent and maybe more more impactful or, or have a heavier impacts. So it's important for us to understand what these natural disasters may be, what they may cost to, to our business and how we could invest to better mitigate them. That's important for our businesses' resilience, profitability, longevity. But number two, it's also important to be able to make these plans and and build them into our broader business plan so that we can demonstrate to other stakeholders in the business, primarily banks, that we have actually thought about what could go wrong and, and how bad that could be and what the likelihood of that event may be and how we've gone about managing that risk in our business because if they're going to invest with us into you know, buying land or you know, invest in working capital so that we can to get, uh, get production from the land they already have, then they'll want to make sure that all the risks have been acknowledged and, and covered off as much as they can because you know, um, whether it be a, a, private, you know, a passive investor or another family member, an equity partner um, or the bank, and they all want to make sure that their stake or you know, their bit is being well managed and protected, I suppose. How did the concept for these workshops come about? The Disaster Risk Reduction Fund uh, were the funding body and the Rural Financial Accounting Service, they deal with a huge um, cross-section of people across most of New South Wales. Um, they identified that a lot of their a lot of their clients um, were being impacted by natural disasters. You know, could have been anywhere from drought to flood, um, and if you go all the way across to the south coast, to um, you know, uh, oyster uh, issues with the oyster production, primarily, you know, um, water pollution um, and oyster disease impacting on on their businesses. So, you know, the breadth is pretty wide on these natural natural hazard uh, risks. And so they decided that we needed to create a program to help people identify what their risks are and what they might be able to do about them cost-effectively. Um, and we thought that this workshop program would be the best way about it. And, um, yeah, they approached the Disaster Risk Reduction Fund and they were kind enough to provide the funding. And obviously, different areas, there's going to be different risks given the, the environment and the different weather events. Are the workshops sort of catered to, to these different areas? So each area has its own unique set of natural hazard risks. Inevitably, there's a large degree of overlap. Um, but we do, for each area, try and collect as much data and local intel as we can to 
to better inform the workshop and, and bring some actual data to the workshop. So in the context of Broken Hill, uh, we you know, through engagement with stakeholders out there and, and our general knowledge, we understand that um, you know, flooding is probably not as high on the list as, as general drought and climate variability. So and when we run the, the Broken Hill workshop, we'll be focusing on drought as a natural uh, hazard and uh, some of the things we might be able to do about that. But at the same time, we're not uh, trying to prescribe people's problems and, and their solutions at the same time. We're going to use the, the workshop format to uh, let people share their ideas and, and have a really robust, facilitated discussion about what risks are out there and what controls there may be out there to, you know, to best mitigate them. And because inevitably, someone may not have considered something, and, and they'll they'll be able to, um, uh, you know, capture that, that that collective wisdom in the room. David Brown is an agribusiness consultant who's been travelling around New South Wales with the Rural Financial Counselling Service and uh, holding seminars uh, on in Broken Hill this Monday, the 13th of November, and you can visit the fin- Rural Financial Counselling Service website to register. It's uh, 18 minutes past 12 on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, farmers in the Hunter say while storms overnight were patchy, they have offered a glimmer of hope amid a bleak season. At Cassandra McLaren's property near Merry War, 17 millimetres fell yesterday afternoon and evening, and that takes uh, the past six weeks' tally to 75, giving her family some relief. She told Amelia Bernasconi a green tinge is helping people's mindsets, although more rain is definitely needed to offer a real turnaround. Last night we had 17 millimetres, it was just beautiful to listen to, um, and that's follow-up from last week's rain. We had 10 mils, um, but we got pretty excited at the end of October to have had 40 mils in October. So we're looking at 70 to 75 mils for the last six weeks, which is just amazing. Gosh, like it's, you know, the 17 mils from last night, like you say, beautiful to listen to, beautiful to get something in double digits in the gauge. But um, when you add up those couple of consistent falls, what does it actually do on ground for you? We're not saying silver bullet, but what's it doing? Oh, look, we can see green coming um, into the paddocks, which is amazing. It's, you know, it's that thing that when you're a farmer, it, you know, it's a glimmer of hope. It's a happy colour. It's, you know, when you're looking at brown all the time, it's pretty sad and depressing. Mm. Um, so, and the fact that it's come now, you know, it's a good growing season for us. So it's just the chance that, um, for our grass to grow and, and get away and, and hopefully give us some relief, even if it is only for a few weeks. But I think it's also hope because this is our normal time for storms and things like that. And I think the forecasts had us pretty glum in that we weren't seeing anything till well after Christmas. So, the, you know, now that we're actually getting it, I think we're hopeful that we'll actually continue to get it and we might return to a bit more of a normal season. Um, but again, that's hope. But hope is your happy place because without hope, you don't go any. You know, you lose the the mm. wheels that go on. So, um, you know, it is really good. But the, the falls that we have 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 given us the green. So, um, this is consolidating that. So, hopefully, now we'll get a chance for that grass um, to go ahead. So, mm. which is has it taken a bit of pressure off? You know, have you been able to cancel any loads of cattle going off, or, or yeah, what's the state of play as far as stock numbers go? 
Yeah, so we actually lightened our load really early, um, probably like pre-winter, um, with the knowledge that we needed to get through winter and we needed to get into spring to make a decision. Um, so this means that we don't have to make any decisions to urgently sell stock. Um, we've been buying in hay and um, pellets and things like that to sustain them. So, um, you know, at the moment, you know, we're well supplied with that. So there's, you know, hopefully that's going to last a bit longer and we won't be rushing in to order another load before Christmas or anything like that. But time time will tell, obviously. Mm. But, um, you know, just, just hope that, you know, we're going to get some relief um, we don't know how long for, but I mean, it, it is coming into summer, um, so it can be a very hot, hot and dry for us here. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if we get, I mean, any growth is good is good growth. Um, it is, you know, the potential that some people may still sow some crops and things because there's moisture in the ground, and hopefully for things like lucerne and stuff that we're all buying hay for that you know, will allow that to keep growing and, and being made, which will also ultimately, if it's not enough rain, um, will give us some relief as well. So mm. It's all about hope and relief at the moment, isn't it? Because when we look back to 12 months ago, it was sort of that October-November period where the tap turned off and for a lot of people it was, yeah, it was October, September-October this year before we had anything of substance. Um, so I guess, do you think people's attitudes have changed even since, you know, like August, mid-winter, things were pretty dire. Yeah, I think people are still coming to the grips of what we had. But when you look at your totals, we had um, we had under 300 mules at the end of September, um, which, which is three-quarters of the way through the year and is less than half our average rain, rainfall. Um, but this extra three inches obviously makes um, a big difference to our forecast. We're still a long way off our yearly average, um, but there's hope that it's it's going to, you know, pick up. So when you look at your rainfall charts and you go, oh, you know, we only had 290 mils to the end of September or whatever it was, but then you look back and you go, well, you know, the fact that we've nearly had, you know, the three inches makes a big difference to that. So, um, you know, it's just adding so much more hope into what we're doing and our planning and all that sort of stuff. Cassandra McLaren Farms Cattle at Merry War. She was speaking there to Amelia Bernasconi on the rainfall. Dave in Trundles texted in to say the rainfall total for 2023 so far is a very poor 329 millimetres with the majority of that, he says, coming from numerous thunderstorm activity and uh, many of that at the wrong time, according to Dave in Trundle. And uh, we'd like to hear from you about the rainfall. We'll talk about 52% of the state now being in drought or close to drought. You can always send us a text. 0467 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to the Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales.
As consumers want to know more and more about where their food comes from, it can be difficult to explain what makes a farm sustainable. Plans have now been unveiled for a $19 million National Circularity Centre, which will document how the Bega Valley makes the transition to a circular economy, reducing emissions and waste from the supply chain. The facility, designed by Cox Architecture, will be built at the entrance to Bega, and Executive Chairman of Bega Group, Barry Irvin, says it will attract a national and international audience. I think importantly it's the culmination of two years of really great commitment and collaboration from a number of people from across government and across the corporate world and, and, and the general community. And so to actually be here, be able to show people models, be able to show them virtual, um, virtual videos of what the centre will be like, I think it's just exciting everybody. We know, that, we know that it's a really unique and bold ambition to say that the National Centre for Circularity will be here in Bega. And, and I think we can feel really proud of that. Once again, it'll be something unique for the region, but I think it'll be something that'll be the envy of the world. Describe the centre in itself, because it'll be doing multiple functions. Not only It's not only an educational facility, but it's tourism, and it's uh, very heavily linked with agriculture. Yes. So, look, I think the important thing, and especially in the age that we live in, and I think that the age that is in front of us, uh, people are getting further and further removed from how their food is produced, uh, exactly what an environmental footprint might look like, how, 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 how that footprint can be improved. Um, so I think what the Circularity Centre will do is bring that world to people in a manner in which they're starting to get used to it, in a, in a digital form, in the fact that you know, they will have real evidence, real-time evidence of what's happening in a wetland or what's happening around carbon sequestration, what's happening around food production or water use. And I think the fact that we can bring that to one place, it's very difficult to show sustainability. The, circular, the Circularity Centre will be a place where people will be able to see sustainability and learn while they're seeing it, which will tell them a lot about the food products that are being produced the environmental practices that are being applied, um, and indeed they'll learn about what their contribution can be. So I think it's, it, it, it will do many things, as you say. Perhaps importantly, it'll also be a place to stop and have a really nice coffee or a local glass of wine and some great local produce. So I think it will, it will serve many roles and many purposes. We know the locals will love it, but we think people will come from around the world to see it. When people are thinking about... This National Circularity Centre, it brings abstract ideas like circularity and emissions reduction, which are hard to conceptualise to a practical sense. When you're talking about it with farmers, what's the way that you explain circularity and why it's important to them? I think that, you know, the way of changing thinking is that I think traditionally we would take a resource, we would use it, we would create a product, we were, it would be sold, we would not think much about it beyond that point. I think circularity really talks about the fact that you think about the end of life of a product and if you think about what happens at the end of its existence, it changes the way you, you might produce the product in the first place. So, so I sort of say, well, look, really, if we can use renewable resources to create the products we're going to create, that's perfect. But if we can't and we've got to use a non-renewable resource, how long can we keep that in the economic system? How many high-value uses can we find for that product? And then when that product has reached its end of life what will become of it, how will it be treated. And so as soon as you start thinking about that in all your resources, it just changes your, your way of thinking about your system. 
And I think that's the foundation for then saying, okay, so I can think about a lot of things and some I will improve rapidly, some I will improve gradually, but it is a different way of looking about looking at and valuing the natural resources that we use. Lisa McLean is CEO and Managing Director of Circular Australia. She says the centre will provide a roadmap for other regions to learn how to adapt to a circular economy. I think it's fantastic and I think it's well placed to be here in Bega as a national icon on circular economy and a practical example of how how you can actually change your economy to design out waste and make it more productive Uh, and certainly Bega has been leading Australia and arguably parts of the world in creating this sustainable economy. Where does Australia sit in the global context? You mentioned the world and, and what's happening around the world. As the head of Circular Australia... How do we compare to what's happening in Europe and uh, where, where do we see it? Well, in terms of our rate of circularity, we're kind of the same as the whole world, which is a shocking eight, 7 or 8%, right? 7.2% actually it is today. So we're pretty low in terms of designing out waste in our economy globally. Europe is a lot more um, ahead of the curve. It's got some really good um, regulation in that means if you make something, It has to be made to last for 15 years, it has to be able to be repaired and it has to be able to be broken down at end of life without any nasties in it like PFAS and other toxic chemicals. But Australia's playing catch up. I think we've got a bright opportunity here. The federal government will release its its, um, framework next year and uh, that's going to provide a lot of security for investment. It's going to give us all a lot of direction on how to engage and participate in this thing called the circular economy, which is way bigger than recycling. Lisa McLean is the CEO and Managing Director of Circular Australia, ending that report from Josh Becker. The New South Wales State Government has allocated $14 million for the facility that we've just been talking about there, and the Beaker Group donated the land and an additional $5 million. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to half past 12. On the rain, four figures uh, uh, put the call out and quite a few people have texted in. Actually, uh, someone's texted in from Canamble. Wow, wow, they're having a pretty uh, dry year there. 13 millimetres at Canamble this person had last night and they've had, for the total for the year, 113 millimetres for the whole year. So, uh, yeah, pretty dry at Canamble at the moment. Greg says they got 30 millimetres at Ningen, which was uh, a thunderstorm, and they got uh, rain, filled up the tanks, uh, and so he was pretty happy about that. But um, uh, Kim from Merriwar, 10.5 millimetres, only very patchy, but uh, in fact down the road they got 30 millimetres, so that's that's that whole discussion we're having about thunderstorm activity uh, usually we have no uh, wind and high temperatures this is this is what previous falls uh, this is oh this okay this has actually the high winds and the high temperatures that they saw previously has greatly reduced any benefits from any of the rainfall they've had because of the evaporation so yeah it's uh, pretty dry in some parts of Mary War as well by the sound things and uh, Canamble to 13 mils uh, last night but 113 millimetres for the whole year so far and we did hear from DPI they were saying that uh, um, many parts have had their driest 12 months uh, ever uh, throughout the state so we'll uh, keep following those uh, those changes closely and uh, we'll have the bureau on in a sec to find out what who got what rainfall and who missed out but before we do that 
Let's find out what happened in terms of the news. Adam Stories here. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Uh, well, following that uh, High Court ruling earlier this week that found uh, indefinite immigration detention is unlawful, uh, more than 90 refugees are going to be released from immigration detention uh, under strict conditions. Uh, the case related to a Rohingya refugee uh, who uh, the government had refused to grant a visa because of a child sex offence uh, that was committed in Australia, but they couldn't find another country to send him to. So he took that to the High Court and ruled that you, you can't keep him in there. Uh, so the government has confirmed that dozens of refugees in similar circumstances are also going to be released. This is ahead of any possible uh, legislative changes that uh, the opposition has said they will back and whether those changes are retrospective or not. Uh, Very unusual to have retrospective le legislation. It, yeah. They don't normally bring it in. No, that's right. Uh, one of two men accused of a series of uh, shootings on the mid-north coast yesterday will remain in custody until the new year. Corey James Glass is the first to appear. He's been charged with six offences over shootings near Tyree, Kempsey and Port Macquarie in the early hours of uh, yesterday morning. He was arrested in Kempsey along with a 32-year-old man after a 12-hour uh, uh, search by um, police. Uh, he, uh, the man's lawyer said he, his client didn't wish to appear and bail has been formally refused. The United States has welcomed Israel's announcement. It will allow daily four-hour humanitarian pauses in its bombardment of northern Gaza to allow civilians to flee to the south. Uh, it's again ruled out a general ceasefire, uh, but has agreed to what it calls uh, pauses. Uh, both sides of the US Congress have written to President Joe Biden calling for the release of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Uh, it is signed by ten, uh, den, uh, sorry, 10 Democrats and 6 uh, Republicans, including um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, whether you want her in your corner, <laughs> anyway, good old good on you, Marjorie. It calls for the US to uh, abandon efforts to uh, extradite the extradite the WikiLeaks founder to face charges under the uh, Espionage Act. And of course, uh, Anthony Albanese recently raised the case with Joe Biden when he was uh, in the United States. And down in Melbourne today, uh, football legend Ron Barassi being remembered. Uh, several thousand people have turned out to the MCG where he won 10 premierships as a player and a coach for three clubs. And that follows his death at the age of 87 in September. Never actually saw him play, but when no. when but when but when he died, they released all this footage of him mm. playing, which I'd never seen. And it, he was extremely fast and very... He was a tough little he player. Was a, yeah. he, 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 he was knocking over guys that were twice his size and yeah. kicking balls like, you know... 50 metres, I mean, so he was he was a incredible player. But also just had things. that personality just made for well, yeah. his career that's after right. football just mm. went mm. on and on and on. Yeah, that's right. right. And all the premierships, of course, he won as a yeah. coach and yeah. the ability to inspire the players as yeah. well. Yeah, quite incredible. So, yeah, yes, indeed. Ron Barassi, so being remembered today. Um, okay, well, you'll be back at one o'clock, no doubt. Uh, probably. If you, yep. if, you get, if you find your way back down to yeah. the <laughs> studio. <laughs> Make my way through. Had the some maze. trouble with the studio here today, so I hope you don't find that when you get get downstairs. Some, oh, look, some technical just issues. Call the text in and shut it down. We just, we just talk for five okay. minutes. I'm just going to shut it down and go home for the day. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> fix it. All right, Adam Story there, who's heading downstairs. Fingers crossed. All You're right. listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, 24 minutes to one. Let's find out what's happening with the uh, weather details now. And Jordan Nataro at the bureau. Good afternoon.
Yes, good afternoon, Michael. So we heard about Mary War the Hunter. Some people got 20 millimetres, some people got 5, some got 10, some got 30, So uh, and uh, 30 at Ningard, but 13 at Canamble and only 113 mils for the year. So, uh, yeah, pretty patchy rainfall, this rain that we've just had. Yeah, it has been substantial in some pockets and obviously very little in others. And that's what we have been seeing with these sort of thunderstorm uh, forecasts that we have. Obviously, that chance of seeing severe storms does lead to the risk that we could see some heavy falls in some isolated areas, but substantially less if you obviously do miss out on that storm activity. To give you a sense, obviously, we did see obviously yesterday 64.8 millimetres was the uh, highest in the state to 9am this morning. And that was at Kula, which looking at the records, obviously 138 years of rainfall records at Kula and that was the second highest November rainfall Is that right? <laughs> so it's okay. a substantial difference obviously that we have been seeing across the state is one that's quite stark. Well, obviously we are expecting that continuation even today so we have got storm activity around parts of the Armadale um, Tamworth region just towards the east and we are going to start to see potential severe thunderstorms developing as we head into the afternoon. We're going to see a similar story of potential ice, heavier falls but also again some areas just seeing little to none at the same time just down the road that, yeah it is going to be very isolated storms themselves can have rainfall shafts which are around a kilometer wide um, at the smaller end so it can be one that you can really be just that little bit further away from that sort of area of heaviest rainfall and you do get substantially less in severe thunderstorms in particular uh, as for the rainfall forecast as we get into the next few days as well, so between uh, Saturday into Sunday we are going to be seeing quite warm temperatures being dragged into the state, well above average again for November. And as we get towards that period we're going to still see that risk we could see some storm activity across inland parts, but little rainfall is expected with this Saturday-Sunday for inland areas. We are going to be looking at potentially we could see some higher falls into parts of the central ranges as we get into Sunday as those warm temperatures collide with more moist easterly winds. And then again, we're going to continue to monitor as we see broad troughing across the state, which could see thunderstorms again through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, with enough moisture that could see some potentially severe storms in some broader areas of the state. And that's particularly focused for in the eastern parts, but could stretch into parts of the west as well. So m mainly coastal, this rain that we have just seen and the rain that is expected in these thunderstorms? Yeah, as of what we saw yesterday, we did see those storms broadly along this trough line um, that went across the state. So that did stretch into parts outwards um, near Dubbo as well. We did see some heavier falls occurring. Um, but as for today, it's more New England northwest, edging into parts of the central west again, where we could see some very isolated storms that could be severe. But more likely, we are going to be seeing those severe storms if they were to continue to develop as they are on and eastern parts of the ranges throughout the afternoon today. Yeah, because we and we just had a text in there from Mick who was saying twenty-four millimeters near Manila of wonderful rain there. So and and we we're hearing, you know, the bureau broadly speaking, we're hearing that the chances of uh, summer rainfall and maybe some summer cropping, you know, potentialities uh, this year. That's it's more likely we we are sort of more likely to see, according to the Bureau Longer Term Forecast, some more sort of stormy activity, uh, summer storms this year maybe. Yeah, so the expectation for sort of this summer outlook for storms is one of a, an average summer from what we've seen. Right, in the past. okay, average, yeah. Um, As so, opposed yeah, to what we've seen previously. 
Yeah, so we're not hoping for the extremes, but looking mm. as though that we still are going to see some severe thunderstorms that could be delivering heavy rainfalls at times, but we are going to possibly at the same time see those long stretches of warm temperatures that could uh, again see um, the exacerbation of the obviously warm drought-like conditions we've seen in western parts as, as well. So it is going to be one we're going to have to continue to monitor, but at this stage, the next seven days is still looking pretty stormy on the forecast. Yeah, next seven days. So, so if you did miss out, there's a chance you might get some of storm activity at your place over the next seven days by the sound of things especially if you're in the eastern half of the state i'd say yeah at this stage we're still looking at broad chances of storms across the state so there is obviously a gamble for everyone to see if they want to get some um, but at this stage the focus is in the next couple of days on the eastern parts of the state until we get towards next week where we are going to see that change moving through we might see some stretch further into the western plains okay but uh fingers crossed because they can be pretty patchy That's exactly right. Jordan, thanks for that. Catch you later, Michael. It's 19 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me soon for The World Today. A lull in the fighting. Israel's military to commence four-hour pauses in its bombardment of Hamas targets inside northern Gaza to allow civilians to move south. Will interest rates keep on rising, hold steady or start falling? We'll sift the latest clues to the Reserve Bank's thinking. And an extraordinary breakthrough giving hope to facial injury patients. Doctors in the US perform the world's first successful human eye transplant. That's all coming up on The World Today, but here on The Country Hour, there are 60,000 wool growers in Australia and many are struggling to find shearers. It's hoped to break through research into biological wool harvesting will give growers more options when it comes to removing the fibre. Cara Jeffrey has the story. I work with the two most sceptical groups of people on the planet, farmers and scientists, you know. No one believes anything is going to work, but I think this will. That's University of Adelaide's Professor Phil Hind, and he's doing his best to convince the wool industry he's not reinventing the wheel with Bioclip 2.0. So we've been working on an alternative to shearing for about 20 years now. People would be aware of Bioclip and robot shearing and so on. We took a different approach to those. They were basically trying to replicate shearing, you know, getting the wool off by cutting it. One of them cut it, Bioclip cut it with a chemical, and um, robot shearing, of course, was using the same sort of um, equipment to, to cut wool. In case you missed it, about two decades ago, Bioclip emerged and was touted as a biological defleecing process. Sheep were given a single vaccination of something called epidermal growth factor, a naturally occurring protein that caused wool fibres to break. The fleece was then shed into a net the sheep was wearing and then later removed. We took a completely different approach to that we decided that if it was possible to make wool weak, weak enough to be easily broken by a non-cutting machine, but strong enough to stay on in the field. Now, that's a pretty big ask. Um, And probably 20 years ago, we got some way towards that. We, We got a long way, actually. We created a weak point. We could break it with a little simple machine that didn't cut you. Um, But there was something missing, and that was we were doing it with a protein called Zane. And Zane is part of corn protein. And um, when we fed that to sheep, we found that it created the weak point we wanted. But we knew that feeding wasn't the way to go. We knew that we had to have better control of how much the animal got and for a short period of time. So we, we needed an injectable. 
And that's where we've made the big breakthrough now. It is completely different to BioClip. This is not BioClip 2. This is a completely different system. The idea is we create the weak point with an injection, which is done the same as farmers do for vaccinating sheep, subcutaneous, under the skin. And we wait two or three weeks, maybe four weeks, for the wool to grow under that weak point. And then we break it with a simple machine that just takes it off with no combs and cutters. In fact, we hope it'll be done without any people involved. It'll just be done with an automatic machine. It's also suitable for pregnant ewes, unlike BioClip. Professor Phil Hind and his team recently demonstrated their research at a field day hosted by Australian Wool Innovation at Canago in southern New South Wales. George Millington from renowned South Australian merino stud Collinsville was pretty impressed. If there's anything that we can invest in as an industry to actually try and make sheep farming more attractive and try and make wool growing more attractive and easier for the grower to do, I think we should do it. At the moment, from what I've seen today, it's probably more being able to give a grower who wants to shear 200 sheep and is unable to get shearers for the day, but I think there'll still be a lot of room for large contract shearing teams uh, to shear in commercial situations. Ian Lugsden and his family used Bioclip on their merino flock at Hay in the New South Wales Riverina for several years. So he was keen to see the difference, especially given the nets that were used in the Bioclip process have been ditched. The only problem we had with it was getting the wool out of the nets. Because we have a lot of trefoil, um, the, the issue then was it took quite a while to get the wool out of the nets. The first two years, or the second and the third year, we actually sent it to China in the nets. And even the Chinese didn't want to pull it out of the net, so that's telling you something how hard it is. While Professor Phil Hind and his team of researchers have worked out how to weaken the fibre via an injectable, they now need help with an engineering solution to remove the wool. At the moment we're looking at kind of plucking machines, and so it just moves across the body and the, and the wool, when, when we get it right, the wool peels off the front of that plucking device and just... We, we, we hope to remove it then with a, a vacuum system. Australian Wool Innovation CEO John Roberts is prepared to spend more money to make biological wool harvesting work. So far, the wool grower levy-funded research, development and marketing body has sunk $1.4 million into the research and will spend more to find an engineering solution. We want to spend as much as is needed on this, on this project. Um, Right now, it's, it's apparently it's enough, but I think going forward, when we get to the harvesting piece, we're going to need to invest more money, absolutely. Ultimately, what the industry wants to know is the on-farm cost of biological wool harvesting. Professor Phil Hind. Very early days to start predicting costs, to be honest. At the moment, the agent is our best candidate. I costed at the extraction that we're doing is about 20 cents a dose. Now, that's not what it's going to cost when it gets onto the market, but... We're in the right ballpark, right? University of Adelaide Professor Phil Hind ending that report from Caro Jeffrey. And you can tune in to Landline this Sunday to find out more and watch that story on biological wool harvesting. It's coming up to 13 minutes to one on the New South Wales Country Hour. We're staying with wool and uh, we'll turn our attention to uh, shearing jobs because uh, the latest there is that the depressed lamb market has meant uncertainty for jobs in the shearing shed and also lower wool standards. That's according to Shearing Contractors of Australia's Secretary Jason Letchford, who says not only it's not only causing wool classes or roustabouts, um, that might uh, save money, farmers money on labour costs, but it's also 
means losing money on the value of the fleeces because they're not using wool classes or roustabouts. He told Eliza Berlage, it's a frustrating trend considering how hard they work to train hundreds of new workers to enter the industry. We really worked hard as an industry to address that and attracting more people to the industry and we attracted around 500 people since 2020 to come and go through our training schools. For That was for Victoria and South Australia alone without counting the other states. And about 70% of those people are still working that we've put through training, which has been a great result. But this year has been, well, this spring especially, has been a real um, turnaround because with you know the, the significant fall in, in the the meat price of, of lamb or you know, the fat lamb market is, is almost, you'd call it collapse. We're, we're seeing the situation where, and, and crossbred wool is not highly valued, but it's, we're seeing the situation where a lot of growers are choosing not to have shed staff in the shed or maybe downgrade the wool classer into just being a shed staff and therefore losing one or two of the shed staff because they're not seeing the value in the crossbred wool. So it means there's lack of consistency now coming on and it's just sort of starting to happen where we're seeing shed staff that are, should be fully employed in, in this time of year that, that are not fully employed. They're only getting part weeks or, you know, three weeks in the month at the moment. What does that mean, I guess, well, first of all, for, for the wool, the products that are coming through these sheds, what does that mean if people aren't, you know, classing them enough? Is that a bit of a chicken and egg thing for their value? Absolutely. Well, it, it, it's more, I think it's more... You know, if you talk to anyone, you know, on the price side of things, people are not real, or some growers are not realising the value of classing the wool because, you know, example I was given the other day that if crossbred wool is classed, it gets $3.80 a kilo, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you're not classing it, you're only getting around $2.80 a kilo. So you're losing that dollar a kilo. And if there's three or four kilos on the animal, well, there's three or four dollars you're missing. Whereas the price of plaster a day, no, through my numbers, is worth possibly 40 cents a head. So... You're sort of giving away several dollars per animal in not having the wool class. So that's what I'd call sort of a, a cash flow view of the world, thinking you're going to save a little bit of money up front, whereas you're not sort of seeing the revenue at the other end of it. So, I mean, everyone would love to have that debate and do the different numbers to me, but that's really, as an industry, how we see the numbers and how we promote and try and encourage growers to, to see the value in staffing your, your shearing shed well with, with highly skilled Staff and that gives them continuity of work. We keep them in the industry. You get more for your end product, and you know, to me, that that, that makes a lot of sense. So we're a little bit dumb, dumbfounded, or you know, gobsmacked when we we hear of these practices going on where you know sheds are not well staffed with with skilled and qualified workers. With the staff that may have recently come through training schools, you know, how many people were taking up training in roustabout and wool classes, and you know, what what could that mean for keeping them in the industry? Well, yes, like it literally was hundreds of people, several hundred that, you know, we've got on our books that we, we sort of track and, and keep in touch with and, and, and do follow-up training with. But, yeah, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's a bit of the old, um, you know, first-in, first-out situation. Largely, we're going to lose those people because if their annual income falls to a certain point where they can go off to a different industry and get, you know, more continuity of income. Uh, in other words, get a get a wage or salary job, you know, it could be in a, in a warehouse or a factory or the supermarkets or that system. We're going to lose those workers. And then as sure as, you know, we know the sun will come up every day, we know that the commodity price of meat and wool will improve. And, you know, we've gone from all-time highs to relatively all-time lows and, it, you know, it'll change. And then we'll be screaming out for staff again and, and much much to our frustration because those people that we 
promised the world and didn't deliver, well, we're not going to have them rushing back in a hurry, only to be disappointed again if that the short-term view or the short-term cycle that they get trapped in. Shearing Contractors Association of Australia Secretary Jason Letchford. Fiona Rawley is a wool classer register with the Australian Wool Exchange. She says farmers taking shortcuts in the shearing sheds has meant an increase in wool not being prepared to standard. It's a bit of a rural myth, I call it, in that when one person hears of these shortcuts being taken, then it becomes a you know a standard and people are moving towards doing that. So there has been an increase in wool, I would say, that um, is not being prepared to the standard, which is the code of practice, uh, which the Australian Wool Exchange deems to be the standard for preparation of wool in Australia for sale at auction. I think growers need to be aware and make sure that the decisions that they're making are in their best interest. Wool at auction that isn't classed or classed by a registered classer or prepared to meet the code of practice standard is of a lesser option for our customers. Now, with crossbred and lambs wool, as these are lower value types, it can be easily misunderstood that that means that they don't need the preparation standard. But crossbred and lambs will have customers, and our customers expect that wool to be prepared to the code of practice because wool that's prepared to the code of practice performs predictably for them. So that predictable performance, contamination-free and prepared to the code of practice is what our customers recognise when they're purchasing wool. Well, that's classed wool. So if I was a, a crossbred lambs wool purchaser, for example, and I wasn't able to find the volumes of wool coming through the market that meet my expectations, then that can become a real, that can become problematic and maybe into the point where they start to move away from using crossbred lambs wool and, and then that becomes an issue where this is self-perpetuating the lower value. So I think growers need to be mindful that they're weighing up and making the correct decisions because to put your wool in the most competitive position at market is to have it classed and prepared so it looks and is presented to its best. In fact, you could say that it's contradictory in a way that in a depressed lamb market, why would you not then also prepare your lamb's wool to make the best money that you possibly can if you're sheep are not meeting that expectation, at least make your wool meet the expectation. So this is probably the, the situation we're in now is that there's sort of some advice and some decisions being made around preparing wool that, that don't meet the code of practice. The other thing is that growers also need to consider that they are probably paying contract price for those sheep to be shorn regardless of the preparation standards. So if they're paying for their contracting teeth to come in and, and they're paying good money for that, then also why not have that wool class? Australian Wool Exchange Wool Class uh, Wool Class Register Fiona Rawley ending that re- report from Eliza Berlage. It's uh, coming up to five minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, Meat and Livestock Australia has today launched two market indicators for livestock producers, driven by the rise and rise of online livestock sales. MLA now has the online young cattle indicator and the online lamb indicator. Learn to learn more. Matt Brand spoke with Stephen Bignall, who's the MLA's senior market information manager. So we did an indicator review last year, Matt, and a lot of the feedback that we got then was MLA should increase uh, its coverage of different sales channels. So we've taken that feedback online. It's been a while um, in the making, but we have partnered uh, with online providers and, and generated an online indicator, both the Ollie for lamb and the Oki for young cattle. How do you think producers will use these indicators? 
Um, I think that it, for producers that are looking at selling online, it will give a really good understanding to those producers around the trends that are happening in the online marketplace. Um, the online lamb indicator is for um, animals, uh, suckers and lambs up to 24 kilos. And for cattle, uh, it includes wiener, heifer and steers and yearling heifer and steers between 200 and 400 kilos. And so it'll provide trends. The lamb one is in dollars per head basis and the cattle, the on, online young cattle indicator uh, is in a cents per kilo live weight basis. In ways, is this just an ad for Auctions Plus? Uh, no, so all um, online um, sales providers were, uh, you know, have, have been invited into this and, and we obviously want to expand throughput and we also want to expand the um, types of indicators, so a mutton indicator and the likes in, in the future. So um, everyone has been consultant and given the opportunity to um, contribute. And are those various organisations giving you data? Um, at the moment, uh, the, the pool of who we're pulling from is, is limited. But like I said, we, we, we want to expand who, who we um, work with on this. At the moment, do you see any noticeable trends or differences, I guess, between the online market and the physical sale yards? I think what we're what the, the, the cattle market is trending similar. Um, obviously, a lot of the transactions are sort of from that restocker side. Um, you know, is that restocker side of the market? So obviously, farmer to farmer. So it, it's tracking a lot what we're seeing in the sale yards in terms of from a trend perspective. The, the key piece this indicator also offers, Matt, is it does allow actually um, for the first time, they're not breed indicators, but we do break out the performance of individual breeds. How big has online selling of livestock become in the last five years? Um, online as a sales platform really boomed um, the rebuild and the and COVID obviously uh, occurred at the same time, and so we saw a lot of demand from uh, producers, both of cattle and sheep, looking to grow their herds and flocks. And and what the online platforms um, provided producers was the opportunity to source animals outside their local region. So feedback has been from producers that they want this, but also by covering an an, an additional um, uh, sales channel. So we know that. For, for cattle, um, online transactions make up 6% of total transactions and for sheep, 9%. We wanted to provide producers with greater pr- transparency. That's Stephen Bignall, who's the MLA's Senior Market Information Manager. Let's go to markets. Let's go to Griffith Sheep and Lambs first up. Good afternoon. We will start with sheep today as they made up half the yarding at 3,500 head and sold at dearer rates. Agents called it the strongest mutton sale seen at Griffith for some weeks. There was a lot of weight and heavy merino ewes made from 48 to a top of $76.20 for those to processors, while restockers paid to $79.20 for ewe hoggets. This put the good sheep in the realm of 130 to 200 cents a kilo carcass weight. It was still a bit hit and miss on the very plain sheep at eight to thirty dollars, with rams still down to a dollar. Just three thousand three hundred lambs. It was basically a bits and pieces yarding with not much quality or fat cover at all. Suckers sold to one hundred and fifty dollars, but most were in store condition at sixty to one hundred and ten. Shorn lambs reached one hundred and forty-four dollars. Prices were all over the place around quality for a ballpark of four twenty to four eighty cents on the better sh- lambs. 
Some trade frame suckers lacking fat cover were passed in. Jenny Kelly for MLA. You've been listening to the New South Wales Country Hour and it's heading up to news time.